Part Two of Make Mine Homogenized by Rick Raphael. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Part Two of Make Mine Homogenized by Rick Raphael. Inside the Circle T ranch house, Hetty bathed and cleaned, and only slightly the worse for her experiences, was hustling about the kitchen throwing together a hasty meal. Johnny and Barney had swept up a huge pile of broken glass, crockery, and dirt, and Hetty had salvaged what dishes remained unshattered by the blast. She weaved through a dozen men grouped around the kitchen table, some in military or security police garb three of them wearing the uniform of the atomic scientist in the field, bright Hawaiian sports shirts, dark glasses, blue denims, and sneakers. Johnny and Barney huddled against the kitchen drainboard out of the main stream of traffic. The final editions of the San Francisco Call Bulletin, Oakland Tribune, Los Angeles Herald Express, and the Carson City Appeal were spread out on the table. Hetty pushed them aside to put down dishes. The glaring black headlines stared up at her. Dairy Detonation Devastates Desert, the alliterative Chronicle banner read. Bossy's Blast Rocks Bay Area, said the Trib. Atomic Butter and Egg Blast Jars L.A., the somewhat inaccurate Herald X proclaimed. Thompson Ranch Scene of Explosion, the appeal stated, hewing to solid facts. Mrs. Thompson, the oldest of the scientists said, won't you please put down those dishes for a few minutes and give us the straight story? All afternoon long it's been one thing or another with you, and all we've been able to get out of you is this crazy milk-egg routine. Time enough to talk after we've all had a bite to eat, Hetty said, juggling a platter of steaks and a huge bowl of mashed potatoes to the table. Now. We've all had a hard day, and we can all stand to get on the outside of some solid food. I ain't had a bite to eat since this morning, and I guess you boys haven't had much either. And since you seem to have made yourselves to home here, then by golly you're going to sit down and eat with us. Besides, she added over her shoulder as she went back to the stove for vegetables and bread, me and Johnny have already told you what story there is to tell. That's all there is to it. She put more platters on the now-heaping table and then went around the table pouring coffee from the big ranch pot. All right, you men sit down now and dig in, she ordered. Mrs. Thompson, an army major with a heavy brush mustache, said, We didn't come here to eat. We came for information. Hetty shoved back a stray wisp of hair and glared at the man. Now you listen to me, you young whippersnapper. I didn't invite you, but since you're here, you'll do me the goodness of being a mite more polite," she snapped. The Major winced and glanced at the senior scientist. The older man raised his eyes expressively and shrugged. He moved to the table and sat down. There was a general scuffling of chairs, and the rest of the group took places around the big table. Johnny and Barney took their usual flanking positions beside Hetty at the head of the board. Hetty took her seat and looked around the table with a pleased smile. Now, that's more like it. She bowed her head and 
After a startled glance, the strangers followed suit. We thank thee, dear lord, Hetty said quietly, for this food which we are about to eat and for all your help to us this day. It's been a little rough in spots, but I reckon you've got your reasons for all of it, seeing as how tomorrow is your day. Anyway, we ask that it be just a mite quieter. Amen. The satisfying clatter of chinaware and silver and polite muttered requests for more potatoes and gravy filled the kitchen for the next quarter of an hour as the hungry men went to work on the prime Circle T yearling beef. After his second steak, third helping of potatoes and gravy, and fourth cup of coffee, the senior scientist contentedly shoved back from the table. Hetty was polishing the last dabs of gravy from her plate with a scrap of bread. The scientist pulled a pipe and tobacco pouch from his pocket. "'With your permission, ma'am?' he asked his hostess. Hetty grinned. "'For heaven's sake, fire it up, Sonny. Big Jim—' That was my husband, used to say that no meal could be said properly finished unless it had been smoked into position for digestion. Several of the other men at the table followed suit with pipes, cigars, and cigarettes. Hetty smiled benignly around the table and turned to the senior scientist. What did you say your name was, Sonny? she asked. Dr. Floyd Peterson, Mrs. Thompson, he replied. And at forty-six years of age, I deeply thank you for that sonny." He reached for the stack of newspapers on the floor beside his chair, and, pushing back his plate, laid them on the table. Now, Mrs. Thompson, let's get down to facts. He rapped the headlines with a knuckle. You have played hell with our schedule, and I've got to have the answers soon before I have the full atomic commission and a congressional investigation breathing down my neck. What did you use to make that junior-grade earthquake? Why, I've already told you more than a dozen times, Sonny, Hetty replied. It must have been the combination of them queer eggs and Sally's milk. The brush-mustached major, sipping his coffee, spluttered and choked. Beside him, the head of the AEC security force at Frenchman's Flat leaned forward. Mrs. Thompson, I don't know what your motives are, but until I find out, I'm deeply thankful that you gave those newshounds this—this butter-and-egg business," he said. Milk and eggs, Hetty corrected him mildly. Well, milk and eggs, then. But the time has ended for playing games. We must know what caused that explosion, and you and Mr. Culpepper and Mr. Hatfield—he nodded to Johnny and Barney sitting beside Hetty are the only ones who can tell us." "'Already told you,' Hetty repeated. Johnny hid a grin. "'Look, Mrs. Thompson,' Dr. Peterson said loudly and with ill-concealed exasperation, "'you created and set off an explosive force that dwarfed every test we've made at Frenchman's Flat in four years. The force of your explosion was apparently greater than that of a fair-sized atomic device, and only our Pacific tests, and those of the Russians, have been any greater. Yet within a half-hour or forty-five minutes after the blast, there wasn't a trace of radiation at ground level. No aerial radiation, and not one report of upper atmosphere contamination or fallout within a thousand miles. Mrs. Thompson, I appeal to your patriotism, your friends your country. The free people of the world need this invention of yours." Hetty's eyes grew wide. 
and then her features set in a mold of firm determination. Shoving back her chair and raising to stand stiffly erect and with chin thrust forward, she was every inch the true pioneer woman of the West. I never thought of that, she said solemnly. By golly, if my country needs this like that, then by golly, my country's going to have it. The officials leaned forward in anticipation. You can have Sally's Cloverdale Marathon three, and I don't want one cent for her either. And you can take the hens, too." There was a stunned silence, and then the army major strangled on a mouthful of coffee. The security man turned beet red in the face, and Dr. Peterson's jaw bounced off his breastbone. Johnny, unable to hold back an explosion of laughter, dashed for the back porch and collapsed. The kitchen door slammed, and Dr. Peterson stamped out onto the porch, pipe clamped between clenched teeth, his face black with anger and frustration. He ignored Johnny, who was standing beside the rail, wiping tears from his eyes. Culpepper recovered himself and walked over to the irate physicist. Dr. Peterson, you're a man of science, Johnny said and a scientist is supposed to be willing to accept a fact and then possibly determine the causes behind the fact after he recognizes what he sees. Isn't that so?" "'Now look here!' Peterson angrily swung around to face Johnny. "'I've taken all I intend to take from you people with your idiotic story. I don't intend to—' Johnny took the older man by the elbow and gently but firmly propelled him from the porch toward the barn. I don't intend to either insult your intelligence, Dr. Peterson, or attempt to explain what has happened here, but I do intend to show you what we know." Bright floodlights illuminated the yard, and a crew of soldiers were stringing telephone wires from the guarded front gate across the open space to the ranch house. Beyond the new barbed wire fence there was an excited stir and rush for the wire as a sharp-eyed newsman spotted Johnny and the scientist crossing the yard. The two men ignored the shouted requests for more up-to-the-minute information as they walked into the barn. Johnny switched on the lights. The lowing of the two prize Guernseys in the stalls at the right of the door changed to loud plaintive bawling as the lights came on. Both cows were obviously in pain from their swollen and unmilked udders. "'Seeing is believing, Doc?' Johnny asked, pointing to the cows. "'Seeing what?' Peterson snapped. I knew we were going to have some tall explaining to do when you fellows took over here, Johnny said. And of course I don't blame you one bit. That was some blast Hetty set off out there. You don't know, Dr. Peterson murmured fearfully. You just don't know. So, Johnny continued, I deliberately didn't milk these cows so that you could see for yourself that we aren't lying. Now, mind you, I don't have the foggiest idea why this is happening, but I'm going to show you at least what happened." He picked up a pair of milk buckets from a rack beside the door and walked toward the cow stalls, Peterson trailing. This, Johnny said, pointing to the larger of the two animals, is Queenie. Her milk is just about as fine as you can get from a champion milk-producing line. And this... He reached over and patted the flank of the other cow. Is Sally's Cloverdale Marathon three? She's young and up to now has given good but not spectacular quantities or qualities of milk. She's from the same bloodline as Queenie. 
Sally had dried up from her first calf, and we bred her again, and on Wednesday she came fresh. Only it isn't milk that she's been giving. Watch. Kicking a milking-stool into position, he placed a bucket under Queenie's distended bag and began squirting the rich, foaming milk into the pail with a steady, fast, and even rhythm. When he had finished, he set the two full buckets with their thick heads of milk-foam outside the stall and brought two more clean, empty buckets. He moved to the side of the impatient Sally. As Peterson watched, Johnny filled the buckets with the same flat, oily-looking white fluid that Sally had been producing since Wednesday. The scientist began to show mild interest. Johnny finished, stripped the cow, and then carried the pails out and set them down beside the first two. Okay, now look them over yourself, he told Peterson. The scientist peered into the buckets. Johnny handed him a ladle. Look, Culpepper, Peterson said. I'm a physicist, not a farmer or an agricultural expert. How do you expect me to know what milk is supposed to do? Until I was fifteen years old, I thought the milk came out of one of those spigots and the cream out of another. Stir it, Johnny ordered. The scientist took the ladle angrily and poked at the milk in Queenie's buckets. Taste it, Johnny said. Peterson glared at the younger man and then took a careful sip of the milk. Some of the froth clung to his lips, and he licked it off. "'Tastes like milk to me,' he said. "'Smell it,' Johnny ordered. Peterson sniffed. "'Okay. Now do the same things to the other buckets.' Peterson swished the ladle through the buckets containing Sally's milk. The white liquid swirled sluggishly and oil-like. He bent over and smelled and made a grimace. Go on, Johnny demanded. Taste it. Peterson took a tiny sip, tasted, and then spat. All right, he said. I'm now convinced that there's something different about this milk. I'm not saying anything is wrong with it, because I wouldn't know. All I'm admitting is that it's different. So what? Come on. Johnny took the ladle from him. He carried the buckets of Queenie's milk into the cooler room and dumped them in a small pasteurizer. Then, carrying the two pails of Sally's milk, Johnny and the physicist left the barn and went to the shattered remains of the tractor shed. Fumbling under wrecked and overturned tables and workbenches, Johnny found an old and rusted pie tin. Placing the tin in the middle of the open spaces of the yard, he turned to Peterson. Now. You take that pail of milk and pour a little into the pan. Not much now, just about enough to cover the bottom or a little more. He again handed the ladle to Peterson. The scientist dipped out a small quantity of the white fluid and carefully poured it into the pie plate. That's enough, Johnny cautioned. Now let's set these buckets a good long ways from here. He picked up the buckets and carried them to the back porch. He vanished into the kitchen. By this time the strange antics of the two men had attracted the attention of the clamoring newsmen outside the fence, and they jammed against the wire, shouting pleas for an interview or information. The network television camera crews trained their own high-powered lights into the yard to add to the brilliance of the military lights and began recording the scene. Dr. Peterson glared angrily at the mob and turned as Johnny rejoined him. Culpepper, are you trying to make a fool of me? He hissed. Got a match? 
Johnny queried, ignoring the question. The pipe-smoking scientist pulled out a handful of kitchen matches. Johnny produced a glass fish-casting rod with a small wad of cloth tied to the weighted hook. Leading Peterson back across the yard about fifty feet, Johnny handed the rag to Peterson. Smell it, he said. I put a little kerosene on it so it would burn when it goes through the air. Peterson nodded. You much of a fisherman? Johnny asked. I can drop a fly on a floating chip at fifty yards, the physicist said proudly. Johnny handed him the rod and reel. Okay, Doc. Light up your rag, and then let's see you drop it in that pie plate. While the TV cameras hummed and dozens of still photographers pointed the telescopic lenses and prayed for enough light, Dr. Peterson ignited the little wad of cloth. He peered from behind to check for obstructions, and then, with the wrist-flicking motion of the devoted and expert fisherman, made his cast. The tiny torch made a blurring, whipping streak of light and dropped unerringly into the pie plate in the middle of the yard. The photographers had all the light they needed. The night turned violet as a violent ball of purple fire reared and boiled into the darkened sky. The flash bathed the entire ranch, headquarters, and the packed cars and throngs outside the fence in a strange brilliance. The heat struck the dumbfounded scientist and young rancher like the suddenly opened door of a blast furnace. It was over in a second as the fire surged and then winked out. The sudden darkness blinded them, despite the unchanged power of the television and military floodlights still focused on the yard. Pandemonium erupted from the ranks of newsmen and photographers who had witnessed the dazzling demonstration. Peterson stared in awe at the slightly smoking and warped pie tin. Well, cut my tongue out and call me Oppenheimer, he exclaimed. That was just the milk, Johnny said. You know, of a good safe place we could try it out with one of those eggs? I'd be afraid to test him anywhere around here after what happened to Hetty this morning. An hour later, a military helicopter chewed its way into the night, carrying three gallons of Sally's milk from the ranch to Nellis Air Force Base, where a jet stood by ready to relay the sealed canister to the AEC laboratories at Albuquerque. In the ranch house living room, Peterson had set up headquarters, and an Army field telephone switchboard was in operation across the room. An AEC security man was running the board. Hetty had decided that one earthquake a day was enough and had gone to bed. Barney, bewildered but happily pleased at so much company, sat on the edge of a chair and avidly watched and listened, not understanding a thing he saw or heard. At the back of the room, Johnny hunched over Big Jim Thompson's roll-top desk, working up a list of supplies he would need to repair the damages from the week's growing list of explosions. Peterson and three of his staff members were in lengthy consultation at a big table in the middle of the room. The Army field phone at Peterson's elbow jangled. Across the room, the switchboard operator swung around and called, It's the Commissioner, Dr. Peterson. I just got through to him. Peterson picked up the phone. John? he shouted into the instrument. Peterson here. Where have you been? Tiny, audible squawks came from the phone, and Peterson held it away from his ear. "'Yes, I know all about it,' he said. "'Yes, yes, 
Yes, I know you've had the time with the papers. Yes, I heard the radio. Yes, John, I know it sounds pretty ridiculous. What? Get up to the ranch and find out. Where do you think I'm calling from? The squawking rattled the receiver, and Peterson winced. Look, Commissioner, he broke in. I can't put a stop to those stories. What? I said I can't put a stop to the stories for one reason. They're true. The only sound that came from the phone was the steady hum of the line. Are you there, John? Peterson asked. There was an indistinct mumble from Washington. Now, listen carefully, John. What I need out here, just as quickly as you can round them up and get them aboard a plane, is the best team of biogeneticists in the country. What? N no, I don't need a team of psychiatrists, Commissioner. I am perfectly normal. Peterson paused. I think. He talked with his chief for another fifteen minutes. At two other telephones around the big table, his chief deputy and the senior security officer of the task force handled a half-dozen calls during Peterson's lengthy conversation. When Peterson hung up, the machinery was in motion, gathering the nation's top biochemists, animal geneticists, agricultural and animal husbandry experts, and a baker's dozen of other assorted ists, ready to package and ship them by plane and train to the main AEC facility at Frenchman's Flat and to the Circle T. Peterson sighed gustily as he laid down the phone and reached for his pipe. Across the table, his assistant put a hand over the mouthpiece of his telephone and leaned towards Peterson. It's the Associated Press in New York, he whispered. They're hotter than a pistol about the blackout and threatening to call the President and every congressman in Washington if we don't crack loose with something. Why couldn't I have flunked Algebra too? Peterson moaned. No, I had to be a genius. Now look at me, a milkmaid. He looked at his watch. Tell him we'll hold a press conference at 8 a.m. outside the ranch gate. The assistant spoke briefly into the phone and again turned to Peterson. They say they want to know now whether the milk and egg story is true. They say they haven't had anything but an official runaround and a lot of rumor. Tell them we neither deny nor confirm the story. Say we are investigating. We'll give them a formal statement in the morning, Peterson ordered. He left the table and walked to the desk where Johnny was finishing his list of building supplies. What time do you usually get those eggs? he asked. Well, as a rule, Hetty gets out and gathers them up about nine each morning, but they've probably been laid a couple of hours earlier. That's going to make us awfully late to produce anything for those babbling reporters, the scientist said. Come to think of it, Johnny said thoughtfully. We could rig up a light in the chicken house and make the hens lay earlier. That way you could have some eggs about four or five o'clock in the morning. Barney had been listening. And them eggs make a mighty fine breakfast of a morning, he volunteered cheerfully. Peterson glared at him, and Johnny grinned. I think the doctor wants the golden kind, he said with a smile. Oh, them, Barney said with a snort of disgust. They wouldn't make an omelet fit for a hog. You don't want to fuss with them, Doc. Under Johnny's direction, a crew of technicians ran a power line into the slightly wrecked chicken house. There were loud squawks of indignation from the sleeping hens as the men threaded their way through the nests. The line was installed and the power applied. 
A 150-watt bulb illuminated the interior of the chicken house to the discordant clucking and cackling of the puzzled birds. Solomon, the big rooster, was perched on a crossbeam, head tucked under his wing. When the light flooded the shed, he jerked awake and fastened a startling and unblinking stare at the strange sun. He scrambled hastily and guiltily to his feet, throwing out his great chest, crowed a shrieking hymn to Thomas A. Edison. Johnny chuckled as the technicians jumped at the sound. He left the henhouse, went back to the house, and to bed. He set his alarm for 4 a.m. and dropped immediately into a deep and exhausted sleep. When he and the sleepy-eyed Peterson went into the chicken house at 4.30, there were eleven of the golden eggs resting on the straw nests. They turned the remainder of the normal eggs over to Hetty, who whipped up a fast and enormous breakfast. While Peterson and Johnny were eating, a writing team of AEC public information men who had arrived during the night were polishing a formal press release to be given to the waiting reporters at eight. The phones had been manned throughout the night. Peterson's bleary-eyed aide came into the kitchen and slumped into a chair at the table. "'Get yourself a cup of coffee, boy,' Hetty ordered, "'while I fix you something to eat. How do you like your eggs?' "'Over easy, Mrs. Thompson, and thanks,' he said wearily. "'I think I've got everything lined up, doctor. The eggs are all packed, ready to go in your car, and the car will be ready in about ten minutes.' They're still setting up downrange, but they should be all in order by the time you get there. The biomen and the others should be assembled in the main briefing room at range headquarters. I've ordered a double guard around the barn to be maintained until the animal boys have finished their on-the-ground tests. And they're padding a device van to take Sally to the labs when they're ready. And, oh yeah, I almost forgot. The commissioner called about ten minutes ago and said to tell you that the Russians are going to make a formal protest to the U.N. this morning. They say we're trying to wipe out the People's Republic by contaminating their milk. The sound of scuffling in the yard and loud yells of protest came through the back porch window. The door swung open and a spluttering and irate Barney was thrust into the room, still in the clutches of a pair of armed security policemen. Get your hands off in me! Barney roared as he struggled and squirmed impotently in their grip. Doc, tell these pistol-packin' bellhops to turn me loose! We caught him trying to get into the barn, sir, one of the officers told Peterson. Of course I was going into the barn, the indignant ranch hand screamed. Where do you think I would go to milk a cow? Peterson smiled. It's all right, Fred. It's my fault. I should have told you. Mr. Hatfield has free access. The security men released Barney. He shook himself and glared at them. I'm terribly sorry, Barney, Dr. Peterson said. I forgot that you would be going down to milk the cows, and I'm glad you reminded me. Do me a favor and milk Sally first, will you? I want to take that milk, or whatever it is, with us when we leave in a few minutes. The sun was crawling up the side of the mountains when Johnny and Dr. Peterson swung out of the ranch yard between two armored scout cars for the sixty-mile trip down the range road. Dew glistened in the early rays of light, and the clear, cool morning air held little hint of the heat sure to come by mid-morning. There was a rush of photographers toward the gate as the little convoy left the ranch. A battery of cameras grabbed shots of the vehicles heading south. 
It was the beginning of a day that changed the entire foreign policy of the United States. It was also the day that started a host of the nation's finest nuclear physicists tottering towards psychiatrists' couches. In rapid order in the next few days, Peterson's crew, reinforced by hundreds of fellow scientists, technicians, and military men, learned what Johnny Culpepper already knew. They learned that, one, Sally's milk diluted by as much as four hundred parts of water made a better fuel than gasoline when ignited. They also learned that, two, in reduced degrees of concentration it became a substitute for any explosive of known chemical composition. Three, Brought in contact with the compound inside one of the golden eggs, it produced an explosive starting at the kiloton level of one egg to two cups of milk, and went up the scale but leveled off at a peak as the recipe was increased. Four could be controlled by mixing jets to produce any desired stream of explosive power, and five they didn't have the wildest idea what was causing the reaction. In that same order it brought, one, standard oil stock down to the value of wallpaper, two, ditto for DuPont, three, a new purge in the top level of the Supreme Soviet, four, delight to rocketeers at Holloman Air Force Research Center, Cape Canaveral, and Vandenberg Air Force Base, and five, agonizing fits of hair-tearing to every chemist, biologist, and physicist who had a part in the futile attempts to analyze the two ingredients of what the press had labeled Thompson's eggnog. While white-coated veterinarians, agricultural experts, and chemists prodded and poked Sally's Cloverdale Marathon Three, others were giving a similar going-over to Hetty's chicken flock. Solomon's outraged screams of anger echoed across the desert as they subjected him to foul indignities never before endured by a rooster. Weeks passed, and with each one new experiments disclosed the uses for the amazing eggnog. While Sally placidly chewed her cuds and continued to give a steady five gallons of concentrated fury at each milking, Solomon's harem dutifully deposited from five to a dozen golden spheres of packaged power every day. At the same time, rocket research engineers completed their tests on the use of the eggnog. In the early hours of June 4th, a single-stage, two-egg, thirty-five-gallon Atlas rocket poised on the launching pads at Cape Canaveral. From the loudspeaker atop the massive blockhouse came the countdown. X minus twenty seconds. X minus ten seconds. Nine. Eight. Seven. Six. Five. Four. Three. Two. Fire! The control officer stabbed the firing button, and deep within the atlas a relay clicked, activating a solenoid that pushed open a valve. A thin stream of Sally's milk shot in from one side of the firing chamber to blend with a fine spray of egg batter coming from a jet in the opposite wall. Spewing a solid tail of purple fire, the atlas leaped like a wasp-stung heifer from the launching pads and thundered into space. The fuel orifices continued to expand to maximum preset opening. In ten seconds the nose cone turned from cherry red to white heat and began sloughing its outer ceramic coating. 
At slightly more than forty-three thousand miles an hour, the great missile cleaved out of the atmosphere into the void of space, leaving a shock wave that cracked houses and shattered glass for fifty miles from launching point. A week later, America's newest rocket vessel, weighing more than thirty tons and christened the Eggnog, was launched from the opposite coast at Vandenberg. Hastily modified to take the new fuel, the weight and space originally designed for the common garden variety of rocket fuel was filled with automatic camera and television equipment. In its stern stood a six-egg, one-hundred-gallon engine, while in the nose was a small one-egg, fourteen-quart braking engine to slow it down for the return trip through the atmosphere. Its destination, Mars. A week later, the eggnog braked down through the troposphere, skidded to a piddling two thousand miles an hour through the stratosphere, automatically sprouted gliding wing stubs in the atmosphere, and planed down to a spraying halt in the Pacific Ocean fifty miles west of Ensenada in Baja, California. Aboard were man's first views of the red planet. The world went mad with jubilation. From the capitals of the free nations, congratulations poured into Washington. From Moscow came word of a one-hundred-ton spaceship to be launched in a few days, powered by a mixture of vodka and orange juice. Discovered by a bartender in Novorosk, who was studying chemistry in night school. This announcement was followed twenty-four hours later by a story in Pravda, proving conclusively that Sally's Cloverdale Marathon Three was a direct descendant of Nikita's Muyek Drosky V, a prize Guernsey bull produced in the barns of the Sopolov People's Collective twenty-six years ago. Late in August, Air Force Major Clifton Wadsworth Quatermain climbed out of the port of the two-hundred-ton, two-dozen-egg, two-hundred-and-thirty-gallon space rocket Icarus. The first man into space and back. He had circled Venus and returned. No longer limited by fuel-weight factors, scientists had been able to load enough shielding into the huge Icarus to protect a man from the deadly bombardment of the Van Allen radiation belts. On September 15th, Sally's Cloverdale Marathon 3, having been milked harder and faster than any Guernsey in history, went dry. Less than half of the approximately 1,200 gallons of fuel she had produced during her heydays remained on hand in the AEC storage vaults. Three days later, Solomon, sprinting after one of his harem, who was playing hard to get, beelined into the path of a security police jeep. There was an agonized squawk, a shower of feathers, and mourning. A short time later, the number of golden eggs dropped daily until one morning there were none. They never reappeared. The United States had stockpiled twenty-six dozen in an underground cave deep in the Rockies. Man, who had burst like a butterfly into space, crawled back into his cocoon and pondered upon the stars from a worm's-eye point of view. Banging around in the back end of a common cattle truck, Sally's Cloverdale Marathon Three came home to the Circle T in disgrace. In a corner of the truck, the late Solomon's harem cackled and voiced loud cries of misery as they huddled in the rude slatted shipping coop. The truck turned off the county road and onto the dirt road leading to the main buildings. It rattled across the cattle guard and through the new unprotected and open gate in the barbed wire fence. Life had returned almost to normal at the Circle T. But not for long. 
Five days after Sally's ignominious dismissal from the armed forces, a staff car came racing up to the ranch. It skidded to a halt at the back porch steps. Dr. Peterson jumped out and dashed up to the kitchen door. "'Well, for heaven's sake!' Hetty cried. "'Come on in, Sonny. I ain't seen you for the longest spell.' Peterson entered and looked around. "'Where's Johnny, Mrs. Thompson?' he asked excitedly. "'I've got some wonderful news.' "'Now ain't that nice!' Hetty exclaimed. "'Your wife have a new baby or something? Johnny's down at the barn. I'll call him for you.' She moved toward the door. "'Never mind,' Peterson said, darting out the door. "'I'll go down to the barn.' He jumped from the porch and ran across the yard. He found Johnny in the barn, rigging a new block and tackle for the hayloft. Barney was helping thread the new manila line from a coil on the straw-littered floor. "'Johnny, we found it!' Peterson shouted jubilantly as he burst into the barn. "'Why, Doc, good to see you again,' Johnny said. "'Found what?' "'The secret of Sally's milk!' Peterson cried. He looked wildly around the barn. "'Where is she?' "'Who?' "'Sally, of course!' the scientist yelped. "'Oh, she's down in the lower pasture with Queenie,' Johnny replied. "'She's all right, isn't she?' Peterson asked anxiously. "'Oh, sure, she's fine, Doc. Why?' "'Listen,' Peterson said hurriedly. "'Our people think they've stumbled onto something. Now we still don't know what's in those eggs or in Sally's milk that make them react as they do. All we've been able to find is some strange isotope, but we don't know how to reproduce it or synthesize it. But we do think we know what made Sally give that milk and made those hens start laying the gold eggs." Johnny and Barney laid down their work and motioned the excited scientist to join them on a bench against the horse stalls. "'Do you remember the day Sally came fresh?' Peterson continued. "'Not exactly,' Johnny replied. "'But I could look it up in my journal. I keep a good record of things like new registered stock births.' "'Never mind,' Peterson said. I've already checked. It was May 9th." He paused and smiled triumphantly. "'I guess that's right if you say so,' Johnny said. "'But what about it?' "'And that was the same day that the hens laid the first golden egg, too, wasn't it?' Peterson asked. "'Why, it sure was, Doc,' Barney chimed in. "'I remember cause Miss Thompson was so mad that the milk was bad and the eggs went wrong both in the same day.' That's what we know. Now listen to this, Johnny," the scientist continued. During the night of May 8th, we fired an entirely new kind of test shot on the range. I can't tell you what it was, only to say that it was a special atomic device that even we didn't know too much about. That's why we fired it from a cave in the side of a hill down there. Since then, our people have been working on the pretty good assumption that something happened to that cow and those chickens not too long before they started giving the eggnog ingredients. Someone remembered the experimental test shot, checked the date, and then went out and had a look at the cave. We already had some earlier suspicions that this device produced a new type of beam ray. We took sightings from the cave, found them to be in direct, unbroken line with the Circle T. We set up the device again and, using a very small model, tried it out on some chick embryos. Sure enough, we got a mutation. But not the right kind. 
So we're going to recreate the entire situation right here. Only this time we're going to expose not only Sally, but a dozen other Guernseys from as close to her bloodline as we can get. And we already knew that you had a young rooster sired by Solomon. But, Doc, Johnny protested, Sally had a calf early that morning. Isn't that going to make a difference? Of course it is, Peterson exclaimed. And she's going to have another one the same way. And so are all the other cows. You were the one that told me she had her calf by artificial insemination, didn't you?" Johnny nodded. Well, then, she's going to have another calf from the same bull, and so will the other cows. Poor Sally, Barney said sorrowfully. They're sure taking the romance out of motherhood for you. The next day the guards were back on the gate. By mid-afternoon, twelve fine young Guernseys arrived together with a corps of veterinarians, biologists, and security police. By nightfall, Sally and her companions were all once again in a delicate condition. A mile from the ranch house, a dormitory was built for the veterinarians and biologists, and a barracks thrown up for the security guards. A thirty-five-thousand-dollar, twelve-foot-high, chain-link fence topped by barbed wire was constructed around the pasture, and armored cars patrolled the fence by day and kept guard over the pregnant bovines by night in the barn. Through the fall into the long winter and back to budding spring again, the host of experts and guards watched and cared for the new calf-bloated herd. The fact that Sally had gone dry had been kept a carefully guarded national secret. To keep up the pretense and show to the world that America still controlled the only proven method of manned space travel, the Joint Chiefs of Staff voted to expend two hundred gallons of the precious small store of milk on hand for another interplanetary junket, this time to inspect the rings of Saturn. Piloting a smaller and more sophisticated but equally well-protected version of Icarus, Major Quatermain abandoned the flesh-pots of Earth and the adulation of his coast-to-coast -coast collection of worshipping females to again hurtle into the unknown. It was strictly a milk run, Major Quatermain was quoted as saying as he emerged from his ship after an uneventful but propaganda-loaded trip. By the middle of May it was the consensus of the veterinarians that delivery day would be July 4th. Plans were drafted for the repeat atomic cave shot at 9 p.m. July 3rd. The pregnant herd was to be given labor-inducing shots at midnight, and if all went well, deliveries would start within a few hours. Just to be sure that nothing would shield the cows from the rays of the explosion, they were put in a corral on the south side of the barn until 9.30 p.m. on the night of the firing. Solomon's successor and a new bevy of hens were already roosting in the same old chicken house, and egg production was normal. On the night of July 3rd, at precisely 9 p.m., a sheet of light erupted from the Nevada hillside cave, and the ground shook and rumbled for a few miles. It wasn't a powerful blast, nor had been the original shot. Sixty miles away, thirteen Guernsey cows munched at a rick of fresh hay and chewed contentedly in the moonlight. At 3.11 a.m. the following morning the first calf arrived, followed in rapid order by a dozen more. Sally's Cloverdale Marathon Three dropped her calf at 4.08 a.m. on Independence Day. At 7 a.m. she was milked and produced two and a half gallons of absolutely clear, odorless, tasteless, and non-ignitable fluid. Eleven other Guernseys gave forth gushing, foaming, creamy, rich gallon after gallon of grade A milk.
The thirteenth cow filled two buckets with something that looked like weak cocoa and smelled like stale tea. But when a white-smocked University of California poultry specialist entered the chicken house later in the morning, he found nothing but normal white fresh eggs in the nests. He finally arrived at the conclusion that Solomon's old harem had known for some time whatever it was that Solomon had been gifted with. This new rooster just didn't have it. A rush call went out for a dozen of the precious store of golden eggs to be sent to the testing labs downrange. Two hours later, Dr. Peterson, surrounded by fellow scientists, stood before a bank of closed-circuit television monitors in the Frenchman's Flat headquarters building. The scene on the screens was the interior of a massive steel and concrete test building several miles uprange. Resting on the floor of the building was an open, gallon-sized glass beaker filled with the new version of Sally's milk. Poised directly above the opened beaker was a funnel-shaped vessel containing the contents of one golden egg. Dr. Peterson reached for a small lever. By remote control, the lever would gradually open the bottom of the funnel. He squeezed gently, slowly applying pressure. An involuntary gasp arose from the spectators as a tiny trickle of egg fluid fell from the funnel toward the open beaker. Instinctively, everyone in the room clamped their eyes shut in anticipation of a blast. A second later, Peterson peered cautiously at the screen. The beaker of milk had just turned a cloudy, pale blue. It neither fizzed nor exploded. It just sat. He levered another drop from the funnel. The stringy, glutinous mass plopped into the beaker, and the liquid swirled briefly and turned more opaque, taking on more of a bluish tinge. A babble of voices broke through the room when it was apparent that no explosion was forthcoming. Peterson slumped into a nearby chair and stared at the screen. Now what? he moaned. The what? developed twelve hectic hours later, after time lost initially in shaking, bouncing, and beaming the new substance on the outside chance it might develop a latent tendency towards demolition. Satisfied that whatever it was in the beaker wasn't explosive, the liquid was quickly poured off into sixteen small half-pint beakers and speeded to as many different laboratories for possible analysis. What about the other stuff? Peterson was asked referring to the brownish milk subsequently identified as coming from a dainty young cow known as Melody Buttercup Greenbrier Four. One thing at a time, Peterson replied. Let's find out what we have here before we get involved in the second problem. At 9 p.m. that night, Peterson was called to the radiation labs. He was met at the door by a glazed-eyed physicist who led him back to his office. He motioned Peterson to a seat and then handed him a sheaf of photographic papers and other charts. Each of the photo sheets had a clear white outline of a test beaker surrounded by a solid field of black. Two of the papers were all white. I don't believe it, Floyd, the physicist said, running his hands through his hair. I've seen it, I've done it, I've tested it, proven it, and I still don't believe it. Peterson rifled the sheaf of papers and waited expectantly. "'You don't believe what, Fred?' he asked. The physicist leaned over and tapped the papers in Peterson's hands. 
We've subjected that crazy stuff to every source and kind of high and low radiation we can produce here, and that means just about everything short of triggering an H-device on it. We fired alphas, gammas, betas, the works, in wide dispersion, concentrated beams, and just plain exposure. Not so much as one neutron of any of them went beyond the glass surrounding that forsaken slop. They curved around it, Floyd. They curved around it. The physicist leaned his head on the desk. Nothing should react like that, he sobbed. He struggled for composure as Peterson stared dazedly at the test sheets. That's not the whole story, the physicist continued. He walked to Peterson's side and extracted the two all-white sheets. This, he said brokenly, represents a sheet of photographic paper dipped in that crud and then allowed to dry before being bombarded with radiation. And this, he waved at the other sheet, is a piece of photopaper in the center of a panel protected by another sheet of ordinary typing paper coated with that stuff. Peterson looked up at him. A radiation-proof liquid? he said in awed tones. The other man nodded dumbly. Eight years of university, the physicist whispered to himself. Six years in summer schools, four fellowships, ten years in research, all shot to hell, he screamed, by a stinking hay-burning cow. Peterson patted him gently on the shoulder. It's all right, Fred. Don't take it so hard. It could be worse. How? he asked hollowly. Have this stuff milked from a kangaroo? Back in his office, Peterson waved off a dozen calls while he gave orders for fresh quantities of the blue milk to be rushed to the Aragon laboratories for further radiation tests and confirmation of the Nevada results. He ordered a test set up from the brown fluid for the following morning and then took a call from the AEC commissioner. Yes, John, he said. We've got something. Operation Milkmaid was in full swing. The following morning observers again clustered about the monitoring room as Peterson prepared to duplicate the tests, using a sample of Melody's brownish milk. There was the same involuntary remote cringing as the first drop of egg fell toward the beaker, but this time Peterson forced himself to watch. Again the gentle plop was heard through the amplifiers and nothing more. A similar cloud spread through the already murky fluid, and when the entire contents of one egg had been added, the beaker took on a solid brown and totally opaque appearance. The scientists watched the glass container for several minutes, anticipating another possible delayed blast. When nothing occurred, Peterson nodded to an assistant at an adjoining console. The aide worked a series of levers, and a remotely controlled mechanical arm came into view on the screen. The claw of the arm descended over the beaker and, clasping it gently, bounced it lightly on the cement bunker floor. The only sound was the muffled thunk of the glass container against the concrete. The assistant wiggled his controls gently and the beaker jiggled back and forth a few inches off the floor. Peterson, who had been watching closely, called out, Do that again. The operator jostled the controls. Look at that! Peterson exclaimed. That stuff's hardened. A quick movement confirmed this, and then Peterson ordered the beaker raised five feet from the floor and slowly tipped. Over the container went as the claw rotated in its socket. 
The glass had turned almost 180 degrees toward the floor when the entire mass of solidified glob slid out. The watchers caught their breath as it fell to the hard floor. The glob hit the floor, bounced up a couple of inches, fell back, bounced again, and then quivered to a stop. What was soon to be known as Melody's Mighty Material had been born. The testing started, but there was a difference. By the time the brown chunk had been removed from the bunker, it had solidified to the point that nothing would break or cut it. The surface yielded slightly to the heaviest cutting edge of a power saw and then sprang back, unmarked. A diamond drill spun ineffectually. So the entire block started making the rounds of the various labs. It was with downright jubilation that radiation labs reported no properties of resistance for the stuff. One after the other, the test proved nothing, until the Physical Properties Unit came up with an idea. You can't cut it, break it, or tear it, the technician told Peterson as he hefted the chunk of lightweight enigma. You can't burn it, shoot holes in it, or so much as mark the surface with any known acid. This stuff's tougher than steel and about fifty times lighter. Okay, Peterson asked. So what good is it? You can mold it when you mix it, the technician said significantly. Hey, you're right, Peterson jumped up excitedly. Why, a spacer cast out of this stuff and coated with Sally's paint would be light enough and shielded enough to work on regular missile fuels. Working under crash priorities, the nation's three leading plastics plants turned out three lightweight molded one-man space vehicles from the government-supplied Melodies mix. A double coating of Sally's paint then covered the hulls, and a single-stage liquid-fuel rocket engine was hooked to the less-than-one-ton engineless hull. Twenty-eight days after the milk first appeared on a warm August evening, the first vehicle stood on the pads at Cape Canaveral, illuminated by towers of lights. Fuel crews had finished loading the tanks, which would be jettisoned along with the engine at burnout. Inside the rocket, Major Quartermain lounged uncomfortably and cramped in the takeoff sling for a short but telling trip through the Van Allen radiation fields and back to Earth. The takeoff sling rested inside an escape capsule since the use of the chemical fuel brought back many of the old uncertainties of launchings. On the return trip, Quartermain would eject at 60,000 feet and pull the capsule's huge parachute for a slow drop to the surface of the Atlantic where a recovery fleet was standing by. The light rocket hull would pop a separate chute and also drift down for recovery and analysis. Inside the ship, Quartermain sniffed the air and curled his nose. Let's get this thing on the road, he spoke into his throat mic. Some of that Florida air must have seeped in here. Four minutes to final countdown, Blockhouse Control replied. Turn on your blowers for a second. Outside the ship, the fuel crews cleared their equipment away from the pad. The same ripe, heavy odor hung in the warm night air. At 8.02 p.m., 28 days after the new milks made their first appearance, Major Quartermain blasted off in a perfect launching. At 8.03 p.m., the two other Melody Mix hulls, standing on nearby pads, began to melt. At 8.04 p.m., the still-roaring engine fell from the back end of Quartermain's rocket in a flaming arc back towards Earth. Fifteen seconds later, he hurtled his escape capsule out of the collapsing rocket hull. 
The parachute opened and the daring astronaut drifted towards the sea. Simultaneously, in a dozen labs around the nation, blocks and molds of Melody's mix, made from that first batch of milk, collapsed into piles of putrid goo. Every day thereafter, newer blocks of the mix reached the twenty-eight-day limit and similarly broke down into malodorous blobs. It was a month before the stinking, gooey mess that flowed over the launching pads at the Cape was cleaned up by crews wearing respirators and filter masks. It took considerably longer to get the nation's three top plastics firms back in operation, as the fetid flow of unfinished rocket parts wrecked machinery and drove personnel from the area. The glob that had been Quartermain's vehicle fell slowly back to Earth, disintegrating every minute until it reached the consistency of thin gruel. At this point it was caught by a jet airstream and carried in a miasmic cloud halfway around the world until it finally floated down to coat the Russian city of Ermusk in a veil of vile odor. The United States disclaimed any knowledge of the cloud. Las Vegas, Nevada, May 8th, A.P. The Atomic Energy Commission today announced it has squeezed the last drop from Operation Milkmaid. After a year of futile experimentation has failed to get anything, more than good grade-A milk from the world's two most famous cows, the AEC says it has closed down its field laboratory at the Circle T Ranch. Dr. Floyd Peterson, who has been in charge of the attempt to again reproduce Sally's milk, told newsmen that the famed Guernsey and her stablemate Melody no longer gave exotic and unidentifiable liquids that sent man zooming briefly to the stars. For a while it looked like we had it in the bag, Peterson said. You might say now, though, that the tests have been an utter failure. Meanwhile, in Washington, AEC Commissioner... End of Part 2 of Make Mine Homogenized End of Make Mine Homogenized by Rick Raphael